It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Language and content in this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Some voices may come from voice actors, but the words are accurate to the interview described. When you strangle someone, you not only cut off their airways, you violate every cell in their body. Not in some fancy poetic sense, but as a biological fact, every cell in the human body needs oxygen to survive. And when you take it away, you spread death throughout every part of them in which oxygen used to flow. The science of all of this is pretty straightforward. The carotid arteries that carry blood into their head continue to operate. The jugular veins that carry blood out of their head shuts down. Blood keeps pumping in, but it can't get out. The jugulars leaving the head, there are four of them, are smaller and thinner and far easier to clamp down. They're most prominent below the neck, and you can see them in the mirror above your clavicle, heading down to the heart. Your carotids that enter your head from your heart are deep in your neck behind your windpipe. If you take your pointer finger and your thumb and place them on opposite sides of the top of your windpipe, you can feel your carotids thumping on your fingers with the pulse of your heart. These arteries are thick and muscular and their depth makes them very difficult to stop. So when you're strangling someone, the carotides keep pumping blood up through their neck to their brain that desperately needs it, which is great, but this blood has nowhere to go. The exits are blocked, the jugulars more vulnerable to the pressure of external clamping are more or less kinked like four little backyard hoses. The blood vessels in your victim's head, now overloaded, begin to swell under the pressure of all this extra blood. A similar thing happens in their lungs, with the little air sacs through which your body breathes 
called alveoli strain at the lack of oxygen. They spasm and reach for oxygen that won't be coming. And before long, the membranes of their cells rupture and leak out into the interstitial tissue around them. But of course, the trauma of strangling isn't confined to the head and the lungs. Every cell in the body lives through oxygen, and without it, every cell will die. Cell membranes receive oxygen. They release carbon dioxide, and the body survives only through this primal interchange with the outside world. As soon as you close down this exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide, you strand the body on an unsustainable biological aisle. When you strangle someone, you isolate not only their head from their body, but also their body from the world around them. When the body asphyxiates, it starves to death on the meager resources of its own inner reserves. At most, this person is good for three to five minutes of excruciating, dizzying agony, a few minutes of frantic, red-faced humiliation. Relief has to come from within by reopening the body's oxygenating commerce with the world outside. When the body is truly alone, bisected and marooned, its needs are unmet and everything in it begins to break down. The only antidote to strangulation is the body's reconnection with the vast cellular community that lies beyond it. But without this relief, those swollen blood vessels burst, the body panics, and the fury of the pounding carotteries began to tear at the soft tissue of the human face and brain. As these vessels burst, they mark the skin with small stains, like little red fireworks spreading silently under its surface. The ears and eyes begin to fail, and the whites of the eyes, too, turn red with these silent eruptions as they bleed into the corneas. The stress on the brain during strangulation is enormous, and sometimes the lack of oxygen causes the brain to die, so the victim becomes, so to speak, brain dead. Sometimes they have a stroke. Other times their neck breaks. But in every case, the victim's pounding heart races the body towards this tiny, cellular apocalypse. And in every case, it lurches and stutters under the weight of this unfamiliar stress. And then it stops. The man at the bottom of this story performed this ritual of satanic isolation at least seven times, with a belt, with a t-shirt, and with his hands. And each time, he simply wiped those hands on the sides of his blue jeans and melted back into the crowd, sometimes in broad daylight. In each case, returning to the general population calmly, smiling, as if he had just taken out the trash. He went home to sleep with his wife and to raise his kids, to run his mid-sized trucking company, and to eat in restaurants beside people like you, to laugh with his buddies, and of course, to strangle again. But this story is not about him, God forbid. It involves him, but it's not his story. Above all, 
This story is about his victims and the vulnerable women who make their living on the fringe of society, sometimes at the cost of their lives. It's about the price of that life, its hidden risks and payouts, its inner logic and the inner worlds of the women who live it. It's also about the investigation of the murder of six specific women, at least some of them sex workers, who were found strangled and dumped along the interstate before being dumped again by overwhelmed police departments who lacked either the money or the interest to sufficiently investigate their deaths. Why? Because they might be hookers or strippers with rap sheets because they were, to quote, throwaways. More on that later. A third part of this story is my own involvement in the case, or rather in six related cases, that had each gone cold. There were no known families, no social status, no names, and no ongoing investigation. You might say that this part of the story is my story, as I grapple with my own stuff in my own life and attempt to give these women back their names and some semblance of justice. But this story is not about Jerry Johns, because he doesn't deserve it. Earlier, we said he's at the bottom of this story, or maybe more accurately, in the gutter of the story, because he is resolutely not at the center of it. He's one more dirtbag who momentarily piques our interest, in the fairly generic way that serial killers tend to do. We wonder how a normal guy can lead a second life as a serial killer, or what had to happen in his heart for him to become a pathological predator, or why he would strangle a woman who just voluntarily gave him a blowjob. But at the end of the day, these are questions that we can't pretend to answer. We have some ideas. I think some very good ideas, but this type of violence simply has no rational acquittal. We can explain it, but there's no making sense of it. We're not about to try. We're most interested in six bodies from the American Bible Belt, found along the interstate in Kentucky, West Virginia and Tennessee. Between the months of February the 13th, 1983 and April the 14th, 1985. We call them bodies because that's how they were treated. When they were recovered, all but one of these bodies was unidentified. And in the years that followed, they were treated less as people than bottom drawer oddities without family or friends to drive their investigations forward. And even Lisa Ann Nichols, the one victim identified by police, might as well have been unidentified for as much interest as they had in her case or as much respect they showed in her death. We'll talk more about her in a moment. In the official case files, the names of the six victims were Jane Doe, Jane Doe, Lisa Nichols, Jane Doe, Jane Doe, and Jane Doe. Now, when you have an unknown victim of a violent death, the investigation is something of a catch-22. You need to talk to friends and family in order to reconstruct the victim's final hours and identify suspects. But you can't have those conversations 
until you know who you should be talking to. People that know the victim can help you identify her, but you need to know her already in order to find these people. And until you do either of these things, it's virtually impossible to take your investigation to the next level. You need them to get to her, and her to get to them. It's a tiny little knot of futile interdependence that is as maddening to investigators as it is nonsensical to hear. Which is all to say, the police are in a tough spot. They might find a receipt in a pocket, or a piece of jewelry, or a distinctive tattoo. But even then, as we'll see, they have the problem of presenting this evidence to the handful of people who might recognize it, when you have no idea who they are. And the more advanced the decomp, the tighter this knot becomes. The deeper you get into decomposition, the deeper you get into human biology. And the deeper you get into human biology, the more we're all the same. Two living people may be different in every observable way, but their skeletons are skeletons. Their viscera is viscera, and their window of distinctiveness simply narrows at each successive strata of the human organism and of biological decay. The one thing you do have with every John or Jane Doe is some sense of location. Every victim is found somewhere. You may not know who, what, when, why, or how, but whenever a body surfaces, you will always have a where. When you have a where, you can put a pin in a map and work out from there. You can look for witnesses, you can search the area, and you can begin your deductions. So whatever else you're missing in your Jane Doe investigation, you at least have this sense of place, this tangible focal point that tells you something about them. Until you don't. In one sense, the worst possible place to find these bodies is along the interstate. Spend two minutes on a federal highway and you'll see a dozen states in the license place around you. Part of the beauty of these roads is our ability to reach any state in the lower 48 from any other in the span of a day or two. An unidentified body on the interstate is an investigative nightmare. A body in Texas could have hitchhiked in New Hampshire yesterday morning. Solving these kinds of mysteries is hard which is why people love detective stories and quirky fictional savants like Columbo and Monk and Sherlock Holmes. There's a kind of poetry to it and a lot of luck. There's rarely a silver bullet in real cases. You get the sense watching these shows that there's always one definitive piece of evidence lurking around the corner. One glitch in two conflicting testimonies and the good detectives find it. As soon as they do, Soothing, balming resolution descends and everyone in the room has a pretty good sense of exactly what happened. The detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. 
I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. But that's not how it works. It's great TV. It's also a seductive fantasy. Even the best investigators fumble through their work. And when you're dealing with an unidentified victim, you're more or less working in the dark, grasping at straws and trying to know you know not what. So we want to give these detectives their due. When it comes to cases like these, their work is really hard. We're not interested in hounding well-meaning people who are just trying to do their jobs. Law enforcement is always bound by all kinds of restrictions invisible to the rest of us. They have budget limitations, time limitations. They have legal limitations and arrests they'd love to make, but are prevented from making by the letter of the law. And they have political pressure from above to serve those needs in the general public, most likely to get their bosses re-elected. We're not bothered by the lack of success in these Jane Doe cases, or even whatever incompetence may or may not have contributed to this. It's no secret that not everyone is great at their job. That's just part of life. And we're all guilty by some degree of striking out in big moments. What bothered me most about these cases was something else. It wasn't that they weren't coming through. It was that they didn't appear to be trying. Granted, the odds were stacked against them, but they seemed more bothered by the rap sheets of their victims than by their brutal murders. They were more interested in delivering snappy one-liners regarding these women's life choices than they were bringing them justice. The term I heard again and again for this type of victim was throwaway, not from the media or the general population, but from law enforcement personnel. I heard it from detectives when they compared one woman's drug problem to their car's gasoline problem and joked about the length of her rap sheet in the same press conference that they were announcing her death. If you know anything of my story, you know how I feel about this, not because I have an evolved conscience of some kind and certainly not because I'm a better person than you, but simply because I myself 
Shane Waters, and the throwaway. I was a homeless man for years, but then again, that isn't strictly true. I wasn't a man. I was more of a kid. I was 16 years old, sleeping outdoors and on couches, of unsuspecting acquaintances, taking my meals and my friends where I could find them. But years later, I had the good fortune of getting out and of being loved and looked out for. I somehow graduated high school before enrolling in a local university in Indiana for a degree in forensic science. I've since become a professional podcaster with a global audience of about 500,000. I speak at school events and at crime and podcast conventions across the country, but I'll always be a throwaway. I know about the cold nights, the loneliness, the strange feeling of being lost without anyone thinking to look for me. The way you think of yourself changes, the risks you're willing to take, the people you're willing to spend time with, the value you put on your life lessons as it brings you more suffering, more alienation, and less potential for happiness than ever before. You start to wonder what you're hanging on for and why you're delaying any pleasure or any risk in a life that is no longer worth protecting. You go places you shouldn't go, and you do things you shouldn't do, not because you are a bad person, but because you are in pain. You're being controlled from within by anxiety and hurt and fear and all sorts of other things you never felt when people loved you and you had a place to go. You're grappling with layers of human need you never knew you had. It's like the skin on your body is peeled back and all of this understuff is exposed to the elements and it's just going to hurt. There's a reason we have skin, like there's a reason we have homes and community. It protects us and also packages us and keeps us viable for healthy human interaction. But when you're out of community, you enter a death spiral of self-fulfilling despair. You're controlled by the weather, your need of shelter, and your animal needs. Basic operations, like breakfast and basic functions, like going to the bathroom, become logistical feats that dominate your attention and consume energy you might have spent on more enduring or lovelier things. But it all just wears you down, erodes your sense of self, and I was so damn shy. I was always concerned that I'd be putting people out if I asked for help, that I'd be a burden on people in my life that I cared for. When all of your relationships become transactional, you start to die a little bit as a person. The give and take of loving relationships throughout a person's soul is like the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide across the cell membranes of their body. We need this traffic, this inhalation and exhalation of care and affection to survive. Without it, those quiet, redeeming parts of our innermost selves begin to decompose. The parts of us that laugh easily, that love easily, and dream, crumble, and leak out like our cells with interstitial fluid. Before we know it, we don't recognize ourselves. Things have been taken from us, from within, 
as well as without. And just like that, an imperceptible degrees were lost. I was fortunate enough to be found again and loved and cared for. But I never left all of that behind and I no longer want to. I was ashamed of it at first, but it's become a significant part of who I am. I think it's why I feel the solidarity that I do with women like these and why I was drawn to the story of the redhead murders, the kind of flippant commentary I kept hearing from officials regarding these victims of violent crimes made me nauseous. Reflecting on it now, I can pinpoint it as the reason I became a podcaster. The following is an excerpt from an article in the Tennessean newspaper on June the 26th, 1985. The body of a woman, Metro Police say, has the second longest prostitute record in Nashville, has been identified as one of the eight redhead murder victims, officials said. The semi-nude and strangled body, found last September the 16th on Interstate 40, an entrance ramp near Shearerville, Arkansas, was identified as Lisa Ann Jarvis, also known as Lisa Ann Nichols and Lisa Ann Fuller, police said yesterday. She has the second largest prostitute record in Nashville and Davidson County, said Sergeant Raymond Buchanan, a Metro Vice Squad officer. Her rap sheet stretches from the ceiling to the floor three times, Buchanan said. Jarvis, whose nickname was Baby Doll, has been arrested on charges of prostitution, shoplifting, larceny, robbery and drugs. She had a drug habit worse than my car has a gasoline habit, he said. I'll always remember the way it felt to be cut off from life in the way that I was and to be exiled as a teenage boy with no hope and no self-esteem. I don't know what I might have done to survive or done for affection or done for money under the right circumstances. I'm a six foot nine man, not a petite woman, and my options are limited. I can't pretend like you can't pretend that selling your body for money and solving your unfathomable hurt with addiction is something we could never begin to do. And this word throwaway, it's not just a word. It's an atmosphere of indifference that begins to creep into the fabric of the investigation. In some cases, corrupts it entirely. I heard one detective describe to me, off the record, one cold case he had tried to revive without success. The victim had bruising around her neck. She had a broken collarbone, a broken cheekbone, and signs of restraint around her wrists and ankles. The official cause of death? Suicide. When it's a suicide, you don't have to investigate. You don't have to spend your resources and your man hours. You've already found the killer, and the killer is dead. So you can move on to the next person more worthy of your attention. When you bury Jane Doe in her anonymous grave, you can get back to serving the taxpayers and the respectable citizens who pay your salary. You can get back to the community that did not include her. You know, people with families and honour roll students and <clears throat> the suburban middle-class good guys who kept her in business for so many years. And then you pack up her last effects and bury those too. 
in a cardboard box in the evidence room. Her box can gather dust and prop up more interesting cases that meet the political requirements of your supposedly apolitical job, as did the case of Lisa Ann Nichols, also known as Lisa Ann Jarvis, as her killer walked free. As of five years ago, Lisa was the only known victim of the redhead murders who had been identified. After 34 years of investigation, to their credit, the TBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, had at that time included Jarvis's body on a list of those possibly involved in serial killings. This is from another article from the early 80s. Authorities are not sure one person is responsible for the killings or how many victims there might be. Having what background we have at this point, she seems to be consistent with what we thought in the beginning, a transient-type person, said Steve Watson, deputy director of the TBI. Jarvis's identification was made Sunday by Walker after he followed a lead to Fort Lauderdale, Florida last week. There, he said he interviewed an admitted pimp and prostitute who said they had lived with Jarvis in West Memphis for a short time, knowing her as Lisa Ann Nichols. The pimp, who was in a Florida jail, told Walker he last saw Jarvis getting into a tractor trailer on September the 12th, 1984, at a truck stop outside Shearerville, said Walker. Authorities believe she was killed within 24 hours when she was last seen working the truck stop. But when I called the FBI for an update on their investigation, I was essentially told there wasn't one. Not just for Lisa, but for the redhead murders altogether. When I called them back, they actually hung up on me. And in that moment, more than just the phone clicked. I decided that if they weren't reopening their investigation... I would start my own. The victims among the so-called redhead murders share a number of core characteristics beyond the fact that they all had, or appeared to have, at the time of their deaths, red hair. They were all found along interstates in the Bible Belt and appear to have been homeless, transient sex workers. Lisa, at least, often worked at truck stops, one of the roughest prostitution circuits, and it's likely the other Jane Doe's did too. Because of this, in our next episode, we'll be looking into the world of truck stop prostitution and the lives of the so-called lot lizards that kept it running. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. 